0: My name is Grady. I'm the pastor here at Maricopa Springs. Um, I I think, I guess in my experience, I I think this, that just about every young kid has some sort of dream or ambition or aspiration for their life. What they want to be when they grow up, which is such a fun question to ask little kids, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? And just listen to the responses that come back. And if you had asked me when I was a little kid, probably four years old, Grady, what do you want to be when you grow up? My answer would have been, I want to be a lumberjack. (laughs) Yes, a lumberjack, because my four-year-old mind could think of no more awesome life career path than wearing red flannel shirts, carrying around a giant ax, and hacking down majestically beautiful trees, right? In my mind, lumberjack was just the epitome of awesomeness and uh, to this day i am not entirely sure how i came to have that opinion as a child i think that it was because my dad had a good friend who when i was a kid um, he had a big burly beard he wore a lot of red flannel shirts and he was big and strong and tough And, and so i looked up to this guy i thought he was cool and for some reason, I thought he was a lumberjack, and so that's just what I wanted to be when I grew up. That, that's about the most sense I can make of that. But the point is this, um, if, you ever, if, if you ever fire me, I'll probably go be a lumberjack, so maybe spare me from that. But, but the point is this, every child has some sort of idealism that comes with their newness of life, right? Right? Children are idealistic. They believe that they can be something exceptional. They believe they have a choice in the direction that their life goes. They don't aspire to do modest things. Like, ask any kid and they don't say, like, I want to sit at a desk from 8 to 5 in a cubicle, Monday through Friday, right? They have aspirations and dreams. They imagine the greatest thing that they can desire to do and they intend to be that great thing, whatever it is. So to you, a lumberjack may seem like a pretty lowly career, but I assure you that when I was a kid, I thought that that was, again, just the epitome of greatness, and I wanted to be the greatest thing that I could think of being. I wanted to do the greatest thing that I could do, and that was to be a lumberjack, okay? I didn't want to sit around and be a spectator in life. Uh, I had ambitions, and I was going to seek to fulfill them. And again, childhood carries with it this idealism that believes in the impossible. It knows no boundaries. It knows no limitations, okay? And I would say to you that spiritual childhood in some ways is very similar, isn't it? Maybe you went through an experience like this. So often when people hear the good news for the first time and they give their life to Jesus, they meet Christ in a way that grips their life. They end up with this spiritual idealism. They want to take on the world. They become ambitious for the kingdom of God. They go to their neighbors not really knowing any better, sharing the gospel, thinking that, yeah, everybody will come to believe this because it's great, right? They dream about serving Jesus and changing the world and telling their friends and their family. They don't know anything about shame or fear or anything like that, right? They just want people to know this great God and Savior, and they're unstoppable. They're filled with this idealism that believes the impossible. It knows no boundaries or limitations. And in this newness of life, they can think of nothing greater than sharing Christ and serving Jesus. But then there are those of us, maybe you're like me, and we're sort of like grown up in what it means to be a Christian. We've got a few more scars. We know that that message is not always received well, We know that the idealism of childhood eventually fades from fresh faith in time to something that's a little bit more settled. We settle down into kind of a comfortable routine. We know life is hard, it's complicated, it's fraught with danger, and so we kind of just uh, become complacent, avoiding the danger that comes with knowing Christ, right? Turn with me in your Bibles, we're actually going to be in Luke chapter 8, And I'm going to read this. If you don't have a Bible, we did just get a couple new ones, and we'd love to give one to you. But let me read this. Luke 8, starting in verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to hear Jesus, he said to them in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are told in parables And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So Jesus uses the potential of a seed to explain the potential of the life of a Christian, And as a Christian, I could ask you this question, what do you want to be when you grow up as a Christian? What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you mature? Who do you expect to be? And just like a child has potential to grow up into something great, so too those who hear the word of God have potential. The question is, will their heart provide the right kind of soil to nurture that potential? So to help us understand how God's word touches the lives of people, Jesus gives us four potential outcomes for the gospel, okay? We don't sow seed too often anymore. Maybe you did recently because, like, this is the time of year where you have to plant the the winter rye grass or whatever. I think you do that, right? Okay. But we don't sow seed too often anymore. So this parable, this illustration might be a little unfamiliar to us, but in Jesus' day... Although the people may not have understood what the parable meant, the image to them was very familiar. It would have made sense to them. In the agrarian culture of first century Israel, most people made their living by farming. But the wonder of the teaching here in Jesus is that even though we cannot relate to that kind of culture, we're separated from these people by 2,000 years of history and technological advancement, Farming is not a part of our daily life. What we see here is that the experience of living, the kinds of struggles that people faced then and that they face now, they're not all that different in reality. Okay, the imagery may be unfamiliar, but the struggles are timeless. So the way that the world affects people as they hear the good news of Scripture is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. Isn't that amazing? So let's look at each of these. Let me show you kind of what I mean. And I want to just remind you every seed has potential for life. It is built into the DNA of the seed that it will grow into a plant. God has designed the seed to carry with it the potential to grow into a thing of beauty. And in our parable, the same is true for this seed, the word of God. It's Jesus who's the sower, he's the farmer. The seed that he scatters is the truth of Christianity the good news that's proclaimed that there is salvation in faith in Christ. And that spiritual seed, it also carries with it a limitless potential. God's word has the potential to grow and be fruitful in the life of anyone who hears. The question is, again, what is the state of the soil? What's the condition of the heart that receives it? So first, in verse 12, we encounter the hard-hearted person. The hard soil. Okay, at this time in in Israel's history, the landscape was crisscrossed with people's fields where they would grow their crops. And the fields would belong to different families. And so to be able to make your way through these fields, there were these paths that would separate field from field. The paths in time would become packed down with dirt, countless generations of people and livestock passing through these paths between the fields. And it was useless dirt, packed so hard that nothing could grow there. Seeds scattered on these paths was basically nothing more than just a feast for the birds because nothing could penetrate the soil. And so it is with the hard-hearted, I would say. God's effort to reach them with the truth of his word, the good seed, it accomplishes nothing in their hearts. Sadly, these people are people who are cold to God. And what's interesting is they're not people who don't have faith. Everyone has faith. So they have faith. It's just misdirected faith. So they place their faith in their own accomplishments. They place their faith in their own abilities. Maybe they place their faith in the theories of evolution or the realities of probability. They place their faith in the hope of a better tomorrow, that things are getting better, or the goodness of humanity, which we talked about last week. But they reject the faith of Christianity, and they spurn the God of Scripture, and they deny the cross of Christ. And in America, in America, it's certain that these people have heard the gospel, the good news. They're not like the 86% of Muslims who've never heard yet they refuse to believe it and they reject it. And so, unfortunately, Jesus points out in this parable that their hearts are pretty much nothing, or pretty much good for nothing other than giving Satan glee in his unholy assault against the name of Christ. And I think we all know some of these people probably, right? We know some hard-hearted people. And I would just challenge you to pray for the hard-hearted people that you know. God, in his mercy, will sometimes use hard tools that he has at his disposal to till the hard heart, but pray for those with the hard heart. Next, we have a rocky soil, and the arable land around Israel is covered with a couple of inches of nice topsoil, and then just below that is this layer of limestone that nothing can grow on. And in order for the land to truly be used to grow crops, that limestone beneath has to be broken up and removed. Solid rock is not a functional place for the growth of crops. And neither is shallow soil, right? And we who live in Arizona, we know the scorching power of the sun, don't we? Plants wither and die. I mean, in the summer, if your drip system goes off for just a day, you're done. Your yard is toast. And here, too, we find a sad reality about the gospel message. Some will hear and seem to believe and might even grow in such a way as to make some of us envious of the growth that they're going through. But in time, their failure to become grounded in the scriptures causes them eventually to wither and die. And lack of deep roots leads to immaturity and eventually the death of their faith. I remember a few years ago, um, back when Maricopa Springs was meeting over at Global Water, there was this wonderful young couple that started coming to our church. And Leanne and I really enjoyed uh, spending time with them. We both really liked them. And not too long after coming, the young lady, she began to get involved in our student ministry. And the young man, he began to serve uh, on our Sunday morning setup team in just a role that we really needed some help in. And I met with him several times. We had them over for dinner a few times. And... Uh, And I was encouraged by this growth that I could see going on in his heart, this sense of responsibility that he was taking on to be a man of God. But he never got fully plugged in. He never really moved to a place of connecting in our church. He never grew in discipline and self-control. And he never followed through with the things that he said he wanted to do. And suddenly, sort of out of nowhere, it came that he had this pornography addiction. And honestly, that's not the real issue because people find liberation from pornography addictions through the power of Christ all the time in the church. But when I challenged him, when it came to light and I challenged him, you have to get grounded. You have to grow. You have to put down deeper roots and fight in this fight. Uh, He ended up choosing not to do that. He found no deeper moisture for his soul in the truths of Christianity. And he just gave up. And what looked like fabulous growth at first ended up him just walking away. He walked away from Jesus and his faith in our church. And his lack of roots caused him to believe ultimately that pornography was more satisfying than Jesus. And so he ended up withering and dying in just the course of a few short weeks. I mean, it happened like that. And it was sad, it was tragic. He received the good news with joy at first, but when his character was tested, he was burned by the sun, and he withered and died. And I honestly, I haven't seen him since around that time. I I met with him a couple of times, and then he wouldn't return my phone calls. But I shudder to think today what his childish addiction to pornography is doing to his marriage and his children. And curse the rocky soil, curse the rocky soil that causes some who profess to be Christians to end up dying without ever bearing fruit. Then Jesus tells us about seeds among the thorns, and we could just as easily say uh, that see, it, this is seed that falls among the weeds. Okay, I've learned from experience that where the seeds of weeds exist, the weeds always win. Have you had that experience? Last year, you guys, our church actually landscaped my backyard. And so I have this backyard garden paradise because of Maricopa Springs. But over this summer, something super unfortunate happened. I think it must have been a dust storm. Blew some of the Bermuda grass seeds into the garden area in my backyard paradise. Where we have herb plants and flowers and such. And really, the truth about Bermuda grass is we call it grass, but it's nothing more than a weed straight from the pit of hell, okay? (laughs) And you know this, like, this would never pass as grass in the Midwest. And it started so innocently, this little sprout among flowers, that at first I was like, oh, that's strange, And I kid you not, like I turned a blind eye and within days my yard was just infested and the consequences have been tragic in this garden area, okay? And try as I may to remove it several times, it has been nearly impossible. I rip it out and it grows back with a vengeance. And now the weather's cooling off, I'm finally planning this full-on agrarian crusade against this diabolical infestation in my backyard, (laughs) And so, if you need to get out some aggression, you can come and join me at some point in the next couple of weeks. But the point is this where the seeds of weeds exist, the weeds always win. And so, the heart, if it's divided in its affections, the heart will eventually succumb to the seeds of the weeds, the cares of this world. It may be comfort for us, it may be anxiety. It may be riches, it may be glory. It may be pleasure or it may be worry. The seeds of this life that are weeds are too too numerous to list, right? But you know what they are. Maybe you have some of them on the edges of your life right now. And they're creeping in, they're encroaching on the good soil. And I want you to know that the heart can only have one master. There's no room in the garden for weeds and flowers. The heart was designed to give its glory and affection to God alone. And so the heart that shares both a love for Jesus and anything else is doomed in time to succumb to the anything else and lose its affection for Christ. The weeds creep and conquer slowly but surely. Now I would say I think this is probably the biggest concern for the church in America we're so comfortable we become easily distracted while the weeds grow up around us threatening to choke us out and we may not even realize that it's happening and i think that for american christians it's the pleasures of this life the worries of this life the weeds that end up causing the most casualties in churches okay and then finally we get to the seeds sown in good soil and i don't think i need to spend a whole lot of time here it's enough to simply point out these are people who hear the word of God and they receive it well. They persevere in time. My, word, my version uses the word patience. They produce fruit. They love Jesus. They remain committed to him and obedient to him. And these, I would say, are the only Christians who are truly Christians. The only Christians who enter the kingdom of God and receive salvation. Many people go by the name Christian, but these are the ones they persevere to the end they have deep roots they're in well-tended soil they've avoided the entanglements of the weeds and they bear the fruit of righteousness all right so we looked at each of these and now you're thinking i'm already a christian grady Like this is a message for you to give at like a Sunday evangel or Saturday night evangelism outreach event. I'm already a Christian, therefore I'm already the good soil. The seed has been sown in my life and here I am at church, so I must be the good soil, right? And I think that my reply to you would be prove it, prove it. I've already shared my position on eternal security. Maybe that was last week or the week before. I don't think that you can lose your salvation, okay? I don't believe that. But the Bible is littered with warnings for Christians to persevere, to endure to the end. We read it in Revelation. To run the race and not give up. And so what do you want to be when you grow up? Who do you want to be? The proof of your faith in Jesus is not who you are at the beginning of the story. It's who you are at the end of the story. A short story that I think illustrates this is the pastor uh, and author John Piper. And just to be fair, because maybe I've shared this before, I've started keeping a a record now of illustrations I've used, (laughs) so I don't become that guy who stands up here and every week is like, let me tell you a story, and I told it last week. So if I've told this one before, forgive me, it won't happen again because I wrote it down. (laughs) But if there's anyone whose salvation is like unquestionable for humans to evaluate, it would be John Piper. Read his books. They are beautiful expositions about the glory of Jesus Christ, okay? Buy one of his books and read it if you've never done that. But after preaching a sermon one Sunday at his church, this nice young couple came down to speak to him. And they were just thrilled to introduce John Piper to their little boy, their their new son. And with pride, they told him, this is our son, John Piper. We named him after you. And rather than be overjoyed at the magnitude of this compliment, John Piper got angry and he rebuked them and he told them that they should never have named their son after him until he was dead. Because at any point between this moment and his death, he could screw up his life, and this poor kid would be embarrassed to have the name John Piper for the rest of his life, okay? Named after a fool. Now, John Piper is a pretty, pretty radical dude. Maybe, maybe he was a little extreme. But the point is this. I don't have any doubt that John Piper is good soil, But until John Piper fights the fight to his dying breath to keep his faith in Jesus and prove himself to be good soil, even John Piper thinks he might turn out to be the path or the rocky soil or the weed patch. And I don't think John Piper questions his salvation for a moment. I don't think scripture says you can lose your salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But there's a tension here in the Christian life that we cannot lose two things that are pulling that we have to keep in tension. For those of us who are already Christians, Jesus is ultimately giving us a call to action in this parable. If there's an application for us in this passage of Scripture, I don't think it's theological. I don't think it's abstract. It's very personal and very real. And it's this, which soil will you choose to be? If you've been coming here, you've heard the gospel. Jesus saves. Now you know the word. Which soil will you choose to be? And I admit that this parable, like many of the parables, it sort of messes with my nice, neat theological box that I sometimes try to get God into. I fully believe that God is sovereign. But I see here that my choices matter very much which soil will I choose to be? God is the one who saves, but I bear a responsibility to cultivate good soil in my heart. Soil that is prepared for the seed of God's word to bear fruit. And so what do I want to be when I grow up? I want to be a lover of Jesus. That's what I want to be. And in order to make that happen, I can't just wish upon a star. I can't dream about it and expect that it will be true. I have to work to cultivate a heart of love for God. And before me, each and every day is a super important choice. Which soil will I be? Will I receive the word of God? Will I harden my heart? Will I let the cares of this world choke out the good news of Scripture? Which soil will I be? And I dare not become complacent in my faith. I dare not allow the soil to become rocky or hard. I dare not allow those weeds to begin to grow. I have to labor to be the good soil that bears fruit for the kingdom of God. And notice how strong the warning is in Luke 8 three out of four of the soils mentioned don't produce a yield. That's crazy. Three out of the four soils do not produce any sort of enduring crop, okay? That does not mean that only 25% of the people who hear the gospel believe, okay? This is not some math word problem that Jesus is giving to Christians. But it does mean that the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few, And so will we be among the few? Will we choose to be the good soil? And tragically, I've seen Christians become the first three soils as their life plays out. I've seen hearts that were once soft grow hard and cold towards Jesus. I've seen people spring up in their faith in amazing ways and die just as quickly. I've already told that story, right? And I've seen Christians get distracted by all kinds of toys and shiny things and medals and awards and all kinds of problems that they forget about the peerless beauty of Jesus. And I've seen Christians shipwrecked on the shores of this world by both pleasure and anxiety. And I don't want to be that. And I've also seen average, ordinary, normal people like you and me finish the race well to the glory of God with an enduring love for Jesus. And I've seen less than extraordinary people live extraordinary lives of faith as good soil that produces a kingdom harvest. And so the question that we have to face every day, I think, is which soil will I be? Which soil will I be? Now, here's another wonderfully strange tension that goes hand in hand with this. Look at verse 15. It says that the good soil are those people who hold fast to the word of God with a good heart. And before we begin to think that the outcome of our lives is all our work, our effort, our labor to be good soil, let, rem- let me remind you what we learned last week. Apart from the grace of God, nobody has a good heart. Jesus gives us this little piece at the end of the story, and it's a subtle encouragement, I think. After pressing you with this question, which soil will you be? Let me now remind you that apart from the grace of God, you cannot be the good soil. You are only saved by faith. You are only saved by grace, and it's only through the work of Jesus, and it's nothing that you can do. And yet, yet, Now that you have received the seed of the good news that Jesus saves, I ask you, which soil will you be? And I want us to keep this tension in our lives. I think it's super important. If we go to one extreme, then we think we're saved by our own efforts, and so we are the good soil because of what we do, and that's wrong. It's Jesus who gives us salvation. It's Jesus who gives us the good heart so that we can bear fruit. It's a gift. That's all his work. But if we go to the other extreme and we believe that because it's all the work of Jesus then our actions don't matter, that too is wrong. Your actions matter. Your choices matter. And somewhere between these two points is a Christian faith that surrenders everything to Jesus believing that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet, this Christian faith also feels a tremendous weight underneath the question which soil will i be so i ask you which soil will you be and if you say the good soil then i say by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone prove it